see is actually striking straight forward with one of the most beautiful fields coming with one of the most classical things that survived Christianity and that is he simply gives an example of how to pray this exemplary prayer of Jesus which is known in history under the name of the Lord's Prayer is an exemplary way, it's an archetypal way the way it has been preserved shows it as an archetypal way of conceiving of the idea of prayer. Even many yogis such as Shivananda and others, Aurobindo and others, analyzing the famous Lord's Prayer of Jesus, they have discovered that actually it contains in it the basic idea of all mind control. All the forms of accomplishment of the mind like those of you who have reached already in yoga the famous law of perfect accomplishment, they have there even quoted the Lord's Prayer as a model of the way to obtain things from the universe by using your mind in a creative way. That is why this Lord's Prayer is indeed exemplary and I recommend that all of you should know it and from time to time when you feel the need of prayer you should use it as a model or as a starter of your state of prayer. He simply says, this then is how you should pray. And here it comes. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I will first read it and then come to the pieces of it. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let us analyze a bit the lines of this marvelous exemplary prayer when a being of the caliber of one, when one like Jesus talks and says this is how you should pray, that indeed is an exemplary thing to be listened to carefully. He says, our Father in heaven, with this he immediately refers to the divine, to the absolute. He does not simply say our Father, he simply says our Father who are in heaven. With this, automatically, he refers to God as transcendent, as the beyond, our God, who are in heaven, our Father, not just our Father in a worldly-like understanding. He immediately refers to the transcendent, thus clearing every form of uh, subconscious association of the word, of the word, our Father, with our earthly father or with any other fatherly image that our subconscious mind can have. And he starts actually by praising the name of God. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. What does he mean? He means hallowed be your name in uh, the minds of people, in the hearts of people, because the name of God is hallowed. Basically, he says, may the whole universe realize that you are God. Hallowed be thy name. It means, may you be recognized as God. 
because God exists as a secret essence of the universe, but the creatures do not recognize the existence of God. And basically what he says, he says, God, reveal yourself, may you be revealed. But how, God, how could God be revealed if God himself wouldn't wish to be revealed? God could not be revealed in spite of his own will. And here we are having a dilemma, because we can say, well, if God would have wanted to be revealed, God would have already been revealed through his own almighty will. Therefore, Jesus is asking him, please accept to be revealed. He is simply saying, make in such a way to be revealed, but that simply means what? It means give us your grace, because God cannot be revealed unless through the power of his own grace. The Kashmir Shaivism describes the two ultimate activities of the divine consciousness as hiding itself, and that is what Maya is in Hinduism, projecting the veil of Maya, and then you can't see God anymore because God is hidden behind the universe, so to speak. And then from time to time God, like in a game, pulls the curtain and says, Cuckoo, here I am. Now you see me, now you don't. Therefore, it's an action in which the divine reveals itself. And that's a grace. It is a free gift in which the divine accepts that for a second, for a person, there is a breakthrough. There is a seeing through reality and seeing the ultimate reality. That is why Jesus in the beginning here, he seems to say, Hallowed be thy name, like I wish that all the people of the earth and all the creatures of this universe should realize the divine nature and should respect the divine nature and should they should hallow the name of God. But if you go at a deeper level, you will realize that actually he is not praying that people should reach that. He is praying to God that he should give permission for that to happen. Because in a dark age, that is not happening. In a dark age, the very limitation, the very materialism makes that God is not revealed. Therefore, remember that God has nothing to win. If there is indeed an absolute consciousness, a divine consciousness, a Buddha nature, something of the nature of Purusha, of perfection, that transcendent nature will win nothing if some creatures from a planet hallow his name, its name, or not. Because God ultimately does not need the appreciation of the creatures. It's not about that. When he says, hallowed be thy name, he says, may all creatures reach to a level of awakening, to a level where they can see this elementary truth and they can praise the Creator. Therefore, he is actually calling for a state of grace. Moreover, this beginning is so very classic. Few of you re realize, let us uh, look a little bit into the art of blessing. Some of you might have heard some of these fundamental truths in the lecture about the art of blessing. We can anticipate it for the others who haven't reached. There is a beautiful story about Saint Mary of Egypt. Saint Mary of Egypt was a woman who practiced austerities in the desert for 30-40 years after she had a very, very 
terrible, not terrible, but anyhow, a pretty wild lifestyle from the sexual standpoint, like being a kind of prostitute. She suddenly turned to being holy, and she lived in the most absolute deprivation, naked in the Palestine desert, praying, and she reached to amazing things when she was finally met by somebody. She had been living in the desert for 30, 40 years, I don't remember, and she reached to a, just as, as a simple, as one of the small things which could be seen when she was praying, her body was floating in the air through the power of prayer. And this Saint Mary of Egypt, at some point she meets with this priest uh, who found her, who identified her, they decided to meet once a year and she actually met just before she was to pass away to take communion and everything and then to pass away and they are asking this priest is asking for a blessing she refuses, she says you are a priest you should give a blessing and they uh, argue who is uh, the most humble because each one wanted to be humble and to say you are the clever one you give a blessing you are the senior here I am the second, I am the smaller brother here, you give a blessing. And eventually this extraordinary woman, she admits to give a blessing. And how does she give a blessing? It's amazing when you read. Then he convinces her and she says, okay. And she's raising her hands to heaven and she says, blessed be our Lord, blessed be our God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That means a blessing. You would say, well, uh, he's asking, give a blessing. And then she will say, well, my son, be blessed. No. She starts the blessing first by blessing God. Before she blesses the guy, she says, blessed be God and so on. And then when that power came, then she also gives him a blessing. The funny thing is that the blessing starts in a completely different direction. The prayer of Jesus doesn't start by asking the things of life. The first thing which he does, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. First, I am in harmony with the divine. First, I recognize the divine. If I am not in that state, how can I pray further? Every beginning is first to the ultimate consciousness of the universe. That's where it all starts. That is why this beginning is beautiful. Even in the Christian liturgy, in the Christian mass, when the priest is giving a blessing, says, may our Lord Jesus, whatever, the Virgin Mary, whoever, bless you all, and so on, because, he said, we, we have blessed first the name of the Lord, and there is a special formula, because we have blessed the name of the Lord, therefore may you all be blessed. It's like, that's where the origin is coming. First you turn towards the Supreme, and from there all the rest will be coming. The beginning of Jesus is archetypal. Here you can see, indeed, the non-compromising nature. He doesn't start with any ambiguous thing. The first thought of the prayer is our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means that's the glory of the universe, that the whole universe should be united with the divine consciousness, should recognize the divine consciousness. This is a very beautiful beginning, which is actually the invocation of the grace. By saying this, Jesus actually says, send such a grace that the whole universe can recognize you. Stop hiding behind the universe, reveal yourself, be gracious so that the poor creatures can recognize you and enjoy that condition. And he continues expressing his 
descend his filiation from this, like I am all for you, I am all with you, he simply expresses a resonance on multiple levels that I am attuned with the divine consciousness and its will. The second idea which he says, he says, your kingdom come, the famous kingdom of God about which Jesus speaks and which is nothing else but a paradise-like existence. Jesus promises to all those who will reach salvation that they will reach the kingdom of God. What is this mysterious kingdom of God which is actually the eternal life as Jesus describes it? Automatically that corresponds. The only equivalent in Western, in all, in the world spirituality is of course the state of moksha or mukti from the Indian mysticism and the state of nirvana or enlightenment from the oriental, from the Buddhist mysticism because those are the only states from where there is no return and which the in which the happiness is eternal. It is only in liberation that one reaches an undying state from where there will be no more decay and falling back. It is only in enlightenment and nirvana that one is reaching the threshold of development and there will be never relapsing under the sway of ignorance. It is only in the kingdom of God that one reaches salvation and you cannot imagine that somebody is in the kingdom of God but then eventually they fall out of the kingdom of God. That is the irreversibility of it. It is a salvation. It is to reach a haven. It is to reach the other shore, to cross the ocean of existence, as the Buddhists have put it. That is why, when he says, your kingdom come, he says, like, may we be in Satya Yuga. May we reach enlightenment. He says, may this world become a divine world. Actually, here, one of the modern yogis of India, Sri Aurobindo, has echoed beautifully this idea because he says, I would wish that this world in itself should become the world of God. It should become a paradise. Not that we should run out of this world to go somewhere where God is, but that God should descend and transform this world and make this world itself turn into a paradise. Therefore, this kind of thing, you find it in Jesus where he says, May your kingdom come. He doesn't say, take us to your kingdom. He says, may your kingdom come. That is, from the standpoint of Kashmir Shaivism, it's an invitation to the full Samadhi, to the Baba Samadhi, to the realization of the Divine through Shiva and Shakti, through the transcendent and through the immanent, through the non-manifestation and through the manifestation. Here you can see that always when Jesus is speaking, he is never stopping at the first level of spirituality. He is actually going to the full spirituality, which in this simple way in which he exposed, in which he sets forth the truth, nevertheless he is never not profound. Like many truths of yoga, like exposed, set forth by Patanjali, for example, they talk about a nirvikalpa, samadhi, kind of let's reach the void and that's good enough. Jesus never stops there. He actually implies that the world itself can become the kingdom of God. May thy kingdom come. This world can be thy kingdom. And finally, he says a great one. He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a wonderful statement. It hides so much in it because 
he says, your will be done, which obviously implies, look at the world the way it is, either now or in the time of Jesus, it is the same. The will of God is not gone, is not done. First of all, people don't even remember why they are on this planet, why they live. How should they fulfill the will of God when many people don't even know if there is a God, if there is a divine consciousness? When you don't know if there exists something divine in this universe, then of course the will of God will not be done. Jesus is expressing sometimes those ultimative things such as if your right eye disturbs you, put it out. If your right hand disturbs you, cut it off. Don't do this, don't do that. It's kind of, that would be perhaps the will of God. Is it done? How many people can live in such an extreme way? Maybe if we were in Satya Yuga, in the Golden Age, maybe everybody would be living like that. But the way we are today, the way people were in the time of Jesus, the will of God was not done. People then, as much as today, they are wasting their lives in silly pursuits. They were cultivating just their own ego and petty interests. They were doing all kinds of things and that cannot be the will of God. God did not create the human life and the human being so that the human beings should just build buildings and look to telenovelas. There must be more to the purpose of life than just this. Therefore, of course, exactly as people in the time of Jesus were doing all kinds of silly things and thus wasting a very precious human life in a quest which was ridiculous and a wastage of time and energy, and exactly as it happens today, Jesus first of all says, May thy will be done. If thy will would be done, people would live in a different way. People would do what is the right thing to do with their lives. It will not be, people would not waste things or go against God or be evil or do things of darkness and diabolic and so on, which were happening in those times as they happen today. But he says, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, may thy will be done on earth, because it is on earth that it is not done, as it is in heaven, because in heaven... It is done. With this, Jesus tells us a fundamental element that actually the higher you go in the levels of the universe, the more you go to the astral world, the more you go to the causal world, the will of God manifests. It's like a level of transparency. The closer you go to the high levels, it's more like the light of God is shining overwhelmingly and conclusively. Only in the physical world the will of God is not done. He says, may it be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, there is absolutely no problem. The will of God, of God is done. Jesus says it clearly. But on earth, unfortunately, because of this opaqueness of matter, because of the fact that we are far, we are at a level where the light is dimmed and dulled to such a level that you can't even understand where the light which creates this manifestation comes from. All this world is shining with a light contained in itself. What is the source of light which makes the universe possible? That is the divine consciousness, but we don't see it anymore. And that is why, if you, when you go in your dreams, for example, in the astral world, or when you go even deeper in meditation, in some states which are mental or causal, 
automatically the will of God becomes obvious. It is impossible to deny it in those levels because it's like you are coming closer to the sun. The shining of the sun becomes obvious, dazzling, blinding. You cannot avoid it. The closer you are, the higher you are, the more obvious the will of God goes and therefore the will of God will never be denied at the higher levels. Only the human being, only on earth, that means in the physical world, there can rule this incredible chaotic blindness, which means that actually people can sometimes believe that there is no God, there is no eternity, there is no afterlife, there is no spirit, there is no nothing, and people do a lot of crazy things and a lot of horrible things, not to mention the fact that they waste their lives and they waste perfectly precious things, which they wouldn't do. If they would be closer, then they would be like magnetized, hypnotized, dazzled by this light of the truth, which shines obviously. And therefore, Jesus with this tells us that indeed, in the physical world, sometimes the things have a latency. Does the will of God eventually happen? Right, eventually. But with how many tribulations? There is an inertia, there is a delay before the actual divine influence reaches to the physical world. And until then, some people can get away with this, apparently, in the meaning that I don't believe in God, I don't think this exists, I do whatever I want to do, I act like this, I do even wicked or evil things, and so on, and I seem to get away with it. There doesn't seem to be any showdown. There doesn't seem to be any confrontation. It's, look, see, I'm doing and there is nobody to contradict me. If I would try to do that at the higher levels, I would be burned by the sunlight. In the sunlight, in the, in the light of the Spirit, it would be impossible. What I would do would be like I would be under the x-rays. You could see through me. I would be so transparent. You could see. But in the physical world, it is possible because of its remoteness from the spirit and its opaqueness that for a time the illusion should be so thick, so opaque, that actually you don't see the truth and the will of God is therefore not directly fulfilled. That is why Jesus wishes and he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which means obviously, swiftly, may the universe be transparent so we can see obviously why we are here, what we are supposed to do with our lives, what we are supposed to do in this universe. Therefore, all this first part of the prayer is the prayer, is a part of the prayer in which Jesus makes himself a common body with God. He says, I am body and soul with you, I am yours. May your kingdom come, may your will be done, hallowed be thy name. That means he is expressing, we can even try to think about it on levels, on which levels he speaks. There is a correspondence there, but I don't want to go into that, it makes it dry in this way. That there is a correspondence, and basically Jesus is expressing a lining up. In the moment when I am like this, I am in resonance, and now the blessing can come. Now things can happen. I have lined up with God. I have said, hallowed be thy name. And I am sincere. It's not just a lip service. I am one with you. I have obtained the grace. And now comes the body of the prayer. Only the second half of the prayer actually contains a kind of minimal thing for fulfilling a spiritual life, as Jesus says. <coughs> the first item is very impressive. 
He says, give us today our daily bread. This is interpreted on several levels. First of all, we are having the obvious level. Give us today our daily bread means give us food to sustain ourselves. Maybe you don't realize, although I said it in some lectures, the human being is maintained alive on this planet through a continuous sacrifice. Not only the sun sacrifices itself creating light and heat because the burning of a sun is considered in Indian mythology to be a sacrifice. It's like the sun is a holocaust, is burning itself for life to exist. It's like a part of the divine sacrifices and burns so that life should exist. Therefore, not only that the sun sacrifices itself for us to exist, for life to exist on this planet, but the human being is on top of the food chain. The human being eats a lot of things, destroys a lot of things. We have to eat vegetables, we have to eat a lot of products of nature. Some, in modern times, we have developed agriculture, industry and a lot of things just to maintain ourselves alive, just to feed ourselves. We are actually killing a part of the nature. We are sacrificing a part of the nature. Jesus immediately calls your attention and says, don't be an idiot, be grateful. Actually, you are on top of the spiritual pyramid of this planet. The universe is sacrificing. Look at the poor vegetables. Look, sometimes people were eating animals, perhaps, even. Uh, look at the animals and whatever, which is sacrificing themselves so that you should live. That means you kill so many things to create your habitat and to create your human things. How do you justify that? How are you ever going to pay that debt to the universe? What are you supposed to do so that the universe should say it was worth it? It was worth that all of us carrots died for this dude to live. Because this dude is our God. Look, he did the right thing and therefore we are all spiritualized through him. In a certain way, the human being is like a demigod for the animals and for the lower kingdoms of life. And if this king is a good, benign king, he prays and becomes enlightened. And the whole nature which comes lower from us is like dragged. We are like a train, like a locomotive. We are pulling the whole evolution after us. But if the king is a perverse and a sadistic, then the king is making unfortunate the whole universe. That is why they say in the old days, man sanctifies the place. A, a good, holy man sanctifies the place, helps the nature and helps everything. A man who is perverse and evil and impure is a man who stagnates. The nature behaves to you as to a king and you instead of being grateful and noble and like Buddha saying, I have to sacrifice myself for the whole universe because the whole universe believes in me. The whole universe, I am the spearhead of evolution on this planet. The whole universe expects from me to pull them to salvation. Instead of that, I'm wasting my time and I'm dark and evil. There is no nobleness in that. I fail. I am ungrateful to the universe. I am behaving like a spoiled, egoistic, arrogant one because I am put on a position of leadership. I am put on a position of responsibility. As a human being, I am put in the top of the pyramid. And that is why Jesus says, be aware that all this comes from God. 
give us today our daily bread. It is only through the grace of the divine consciousness that we are being fed. It is only through the permission of God that it is permitted that we should sacrifice a part of this universe to feed ourselves. We don't have the power to violate the laws of the universe in that way. That means if the will of God would say, no, the human being is not allowed to kill or sacrifice anything to sustain itself, then do you think we would be able? We wouldn't be able to take a single atom from this universe without the divine consciousness allowing it to happen. That is why Jesus says, first of all, be aware that when you eat, even physically, when you maintain your life, you are maintaining it through a sacrifice of the universe which is freely accepted by God. Therefore, you are eating through an act of grace. You maintain your life by sacrificing the life of the universe, partly to maintain yours. And this contains automatically the idea, make it worth it. If it's not worth it, you are just abusing it. When you eat like this, if you say a prayer before you eat, like for five seconds, express your gratitude. Thank you, God. Thank you to the universal consciousness for giving me the opportunity to be alive and to fulfill the goals. This automatically makes me more responsible and at the same time it sublimes the energy of food into something which is spiritual. This puts me in another condition. Moreover, at some other point in his teachings, Earlier, you remember when the devil tempted him, there is the bread mentioned again. And he says, the devil told him, uh, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Literally the same. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And somewhere else, God says, uh, Jesus says the same thing. It is not the bread and this, it is the Word of God, it is the truth of God, the teaching of God. So when Jesus says, give us today our daily bread, in his own way, he considered, he said, whoa, 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 wait. He says it clearly two times. Bread is not that important. More important than bread is the Word of God. It is the truth. It is the reality. Therefore, when he says, give us today our daily bread, a man of such a spirituality, a spirit of such a commitment, immediately will understand it in a double way, metaphorically. Give us today our daily bread means give us today reality, give us today awakening, give us today the truth, give us today the word of God. Because if somebody takes you your bread, that's something. But if somebody takes you the word of God, if somebody takes you from you the universal truth, that is indeed a tragedy. And therefore, give us today our daily bread. It is actually a, a request. Sustain us. Maintain our life. Maintain the life of our bodies, but maintain the life of our soul as well. Jesus all the time puts two things. He says there are things which are born of the flesh, and those are of the body, and there are things of the spirit, and those are immortal. And therefore, when he says, give us today our daily bread, he means sustain the body, but definitely sustain the spirit. Because a being like Jesus, he does not conceive of existence as an animal. He doesn't just say, give us our bread so we can be well-fed animals. Existence as a well-fed animal is not in the, in the image. It is not in the liking, in the concept, in the outlook of Jesus. 
Therefore, obviously here, he speaks on both levels, implying, give us the guidance, give us the light, give us the truth, give us access to reality. And the second, the next statement, the second request which he has to make, is simple, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is not possible to be more clear than that. It can be read in both ways. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That means you cannot ask to be forgiven while you yourself have not forgiven. It's absurd to ask from the divine consciousness which is a reflection of your consciousness and which is a reflection of reality. God is like a mirror showing you who you are. Look and see who I am. It is impossible in that that I should preserve grudge and anger and not to forgive and at the same time to ask from God to forgive me. That means how can I be forgiven if I am not making the first gesture of goodwill and forgive? Basically what Jesus says here is dramatic. He says, as long as you don't forgive everything, you will never be forgiven totally. Because you yourself, your own subconscious mind, will keep that grudge as a hook that keeps you prisoner to your own hate and lack of forgiveness. Only if you forgive, God can forgive you. Because your spirit is pure and your spirit doesn't have the incredible cheek to come in front of God and say, God, I didn't forgive all those assholes who harmed me, but you please forgive me anyhow. Your subconscious mind cannot accept this idea because something in your mind says, ah, you are dirty, you are impure, look, you are shameless, how can you ask such a thing? You didn't, and therefore, if you do not forgive, there is an anchor which even forbids you because your spirit has common sense, it has modesty, it has humbleness, how can it in all humbleness ask for forgiveness when it knows it has not forgiven? That is why Jesus is very clear. You will not be able to ask even for forgiveness because of humbleness before you have forgiven. That is why it is obvious you have to forgive and then you will be able to get forgiveness. That idea, he said it so many times before, don't judge so you shall not be judged yourself. The measure which you use for judging, it will be used on you. You are tolerant, God will show you tolerance. You are merciful, God will show you mercy. You are not, God will show you His stern face, and you have to be really, really very perfect to be able to resist the analysis of such a stern aspect of, divine, of the divine. That is why the path of the gentle ones, the path of the dog, the path of the heartful one is forgive. And this sentence, at least in Western languages, which is again not a coincidence because nothing is a coincidence, can be read, and it's the same, I've seen the uh, text of this prayer in many other languages, and it sounds about the same. It can be read in two ways, because it says, forgive us our debt, as we have also forgiven our debtors. That means I'm simply asking, sit for test. Forgive our debt as we forgave to our debt, sir. That means it's just like a mirroring. Exactly the same. I'm basically expressing the ideas. If I have forgiven 50%, forgive our debts 50%. If I have forgiven totally, forgive my debt totally. Forgive my debt just as I forgave the others. Imitate. That simply means copy my own forgiveness and apply that to me. This reflection 
where I'm looking into the eyes of God and I see myself, this is ultimate. And remember that this is substantiated by the laws of the subconscious mind, which say if your deep subconscious mind considers you guilty, you are guilty. Period. This is the end of it. And finally, Jesus is giving a brilliant one. The third request is marvelous. And he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Because you know what the truth is? If God would want to lead you into temptation, you'd be lost. Nobody can resist. If enough pressure is applied, anybody would break. Perhaps a perfect spirit like that one of Jesus, because he was divine spirit incarnated, perhaps he could not break, because he was made of the same substance as the Creator, but the human being is weak. The Apostle Paul, much later, he says the Spirit wants, but the flesh is weak. We are humans, and we know we have a lot of good projects, and we have a lot of good wishes, and the flesh is weak. We are tamasic, we are subjected to the impurities of our mind, we are subjected to the desires and the limitations of our body. Do you think that a man like Jesus didn't know that? And therefore he realizes there is temptation. So the only thing which you can do to God is to say, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil ones. Which means what? This is a great blow given to any dualistic view where the world is made of God and the <coughs> devil. The devil is only a shadow. It is only an appearance of something because it, resists very, it results very clearly from this one. That, that God can deliver you from the evil one, else you wouldn't ask God to do that, and that God himself can choose to lead you into temptation. Normally we'd say that the devil is the one who leads you into temptation. But guess what? Here Jesus says to God, and lead us not into temptation. Therefore, it is the divine consciousness itself which has created the evil and tempts you through it. It's a game of hide-and-seek with oneself. Let's see if you are awakened enough. The evil force is in a certain way your tester. It is your examiner. Can you pass the examiner? Then you, are, you have reached. That is why here Jesus is expressing actually a monistic, an absolutely monistic view in which the only reality of the universe is God. The devil does not exist. The devil is only a shadow which is an instrument of the divine consciousness for verifying, for submitting the spirit of humans to a test. Because Jesus prays to God and lead us not into temptation. Remember, you have to ask that all the time because then your path will be smooth. If you don't ask God systematically, don't lead me into temptation. Remember that if the divine consciousness, this is how you see that the divine is really a lover of the human being. Because if the divine would want you destroyed, you would be destroyed in a second. There is no human power which can resist to such a power of temptation. Therefore, the temptation exists, but it is always measured to a little level where you can resist it. Because if the temptation is growing immeasurably, then hardly anybody can brag that I can resist. That is why here Jesus is talking about a very, a very um, secret principle of nature. 
Sometimes people, and that is valid for you in yoga, when you do things of yoga, you start developing and you start becoming able to do things. You can feel the energies, you can feel the chakras, you can control your mind at least partly and your emotions. You become brahmacharis, you control your sexual energy and you do tantra or whatever and sublime the sexual energy. You start having some hypnotic or whatever kind of powers. Your mind is... and then you start believing, aha, I am kind of successful. That is the root of the arrogance and of the ego, because I start suddenly believing I'm powerful. Many people actually, they have this conflict. As long as they are humble, they come to me sometimes and they complain, my yoga is not working, I'm not getting anywhere, I'm not getting any... I mean, like, what would they want, to walk on water or what? Then, of course, they would be super arrogant, because they would say, ah, my yoga is working actually, right, yeah, like this, yeah. But this is making you super arrogant. In the moment when you say such a thing, you already are very conceited because you say, yeah, my yoga is working. That means my own ego says, now I am someone. Now I am somebody to be reckoned with, you know. I am not just... This is the incredible conflict that your ego is pushing you in this trap. And as long as you cannot say, people say, I think I'm going to drop out of this practice of yoga because I didn't get anything. What a blindness. You are getting everything. You are getting the awareness of the divine. You are getting the awareness of what life is. You start feeling the energies. And actually you are lucky because you are yet very modest. And something in your mind says, but I am so small. I haven't reached anything. What would you expect? That after three years of yoga you would come and say, Ah, I'm not small anymore. I am big. That will be the beginning of your downfall. You are actually asking for trouble. In the moment when you would say, Oh, I'm big, try to realize if the Apostle Paul, after he got enlightened and he crossed the world preaching the truth of Jesus, and he says in one of his letters, I forgot which, he says, Jesus Christ came for all the sinners of this world, out of which the first I am. If such a man says, I am the foremost sinner in the world, then what are we compared to this? That means, how can we say, I am good in yoga, I have done six years, now it's going pretty good. That's an implicit spiritual arrogance. That's a lack of humility. That is why there is a trap in this. Actually, to be able to say, is from the heart. Because when you don't have a heart, you want a confirmation from Manipura. Your, your ego says, give me something. I want to know that I am good. I have done... Six months of yoga, I've done two years of yoga, am I good or what? Am I good or what? Tell me. And if you say, yes, you are good, then you are lost because you slide in arrogance. Therefore, actually, the great spiritual practitioners, they've always said, I'm nothing, I'm a sinner, I'm this. I don't know anything. Yoga Swami, the great wise who inspired Sri Lanka for 50 years and so on, they were coming to him and he said, why are you coming to me? I'm a stupid man, I don't know anything. And the other people said, but you are so wise. And he said, well, I am probably the only one of you who accepts that I am nothing and I don't know anything. At least I am a fool who knows that he's a fool. He said, that's all I'm having. I don't know nothing. He said, I'm just a man like you and I am as ignorant and you are coming and visiting me. You are crazy, he said, because I am an ignorant. I am a total ignorant just like you. This modesty, like if this man after 50 years of life with yoga, he could say, I don't know anything, I'm an ignorant, 
Remember, his ego must have been very desperate because if he really believed that, then his ego would have said, what? And you spent 50 years and you didn't go to the disco and you didn't have a family and kids and now you are telling me after 50 years you are nothing? Well, shit, this is a big bummer, you know? It's kind of, what have you done with your life? That's exactly what it is. Because you are supposed to keep the ego down, not to let it inflate too much. And therefore, there is a great subtle trick in this one. Because you are actually reducing yourself and saying, well, I am not nothing, what am I? I am humble, and in that way, you are actually thinking from the heart. Only when your heart chakra opens, can you understand this, that you can have the capacity to give up and to say, yeah, it's true, you know what, I fucked my life. I am a complete sinner, I am a loser, I have prayed for my sins, I didn't get anything, I don't even know if God will forgive me, I am the first of the sinners. If the Apostle Paul declared himself the first sinner of the world, then what am I? I am dust, I am nothing, you know? And in the moment when you think like this and you are able to keep your faith in God and go on with this, this means your heart is open, because only your heart can accept such a loss, such a waste. Your Manipura wants results. It is industry, you know. It is Japanese efficiency. Give me the results. You have been doing this for three years. What have we got out of this? And the heart says, you know what? You haven't got anything. Just shut up. You haven't got anything. You are just more stupid than when you started. You have lost your time. You haven't done anything. Can you live with that? The ego cannot, but the heart can. That is the beautiful part of it. And that is why... Uh, we have the beauty, the beauty, the absolute beauty of this, that when Jesus is actually creating this relationship with God, that He is saying, do not lead us into temptation, because everybody can be tempted. Even He Himself, in spite of His great stature and mission, He had been tempted, and He will be again, as the history shows. And that is why this is a beautiful, beautiful thing which shows that the temptation itself, we keep it down with humbleness. I was saying, some of you do yoga and then suddenly they come and they say, I'm asking, how is your practice going? And there you can see the wisdom. One who would be like Yoga Swami would say, yeah, there is much to accomplish. They asked the Dalai Lama when he was in Denmark once, some people simply stood up, and you know how the Westerners, they always want you to say it clearly, like I'm asked sometimes in the class all kinds of silly questions like this, and people ask Dalai Lama, have you reached Samadhi, are you enlightened, or what are you? And Dalai Lama, he said, well, I'm just a beginner on the spiritual path, and then <laughs> he started laughing like this. It's kind of understand what you want. If a man like Dalai Lama says, I'm a total beginner on the spiritual path, then what can you say? This is where you see, indeed, the wisdom of the heart, if it is there. Because from the heart, you don't want to assume anything. If a man like Jesus is humble, and later, as you will see, he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve you all. It's like the divine consciousness humbly is washing your feet. You know, I am you, and you are I. We are all one and the same. If a man like Jesus can humble himself like this, then that's exactly what we're talking about. And in the yoga practice, we're having sometimes this temptation because yoga does not mention clearly this aspect of humbleness of the heart. I told you, that's one of the main problems of the Indian yoga. I've seldom seen so much Manipuristic arrogance as in those environments. 
And here Jesus is coming and implying automatically a secret law that if you brag, if you boast, you provoke. That means in yoga, every advanced yogi knows this. If you have been doing two years of yoga, and let's say you have, let's take a classical one, which everybody goes, men, training for the continence in Tantra, learning to hold back their ejaculation and to make love the tantric way. You are asking them, how is it going? And then he's coming and saying, well, I think my continence, my sexual continence is perfect now. I think finally I have stabilized it. If you dare to say such a thing, and at least you forget afterwards to say, well, uh, with the help of God, of course, if God keeps me at this level, I will be able to keep my continence. If you just say it in a Luciferian, Promethean way like this, yes, I, big dick Walter, I am continent and I am keeping it like this, then guess what will happen? God will slap you over the head just like this, showing you that you cannot... Do not lead us into temptation. When you brag, you ask for temptation. The test will come. That is why if you boast, I can do it, then God says, really, let's see. And then you are in trouble. You are in for a big trip. That is why the yogis, they never brag when they know. Because they say, you know what? For the time being, my continence, thank God, is going very good. But I don't even really know how I'm doing it. I think only through the grace of God I can do this thing. Thank God that He keeps me here. In the moment when I said that, I'm saved. Because I don't brag. It's not my ego. I'm doing this through the grace of God. God, do not lead me into temptation. Because if God wants to try me, I'll break like a matchstick. I cannot resist the pressure. And that is why it is beautiful always in this... How are you? How is your yoga? Oh, I'm good. I can walk on water. I can hold my semen. I can see the future. I can see auras. You're lost. In the moment when you think like this, the temptation is coming because you are already asking for it. You are provoking it. The man of the heart, the real spiritual practitioner, says, do not lead me into temptation. That means... I am small, I am what I am, through the grace of the universe I have come to learn something beautiful, please do not lead me into temptation. I have, there is way to go, I have much to grow up still. That means what am I in front of the temptation? If God would want to tempt me overwhelmingly, will I resist? Most probably not. That is why it is good never to brag, because when you brag, it's like you throw a challenge, it's like you throw a glove and say to the universe, I can do it, I am surely confident that I have reached that. And then the universe will test you. That is why, remember that it is much better to be modest, to be a soft child of God, because when you come to God with humbleness, you get a lot of tolerance and a lot of forgiveness. And when you come with arrogance, you just get tested. You get tested. Ah, you think you can do it? Show it. Let's see. And then the test is coming after test and your life is not going to be easy. Remember that it is fundamental from the standpoint of the heart not to make even to yourself such a rash statement. Oh, I'm somebody. I already something. I can do this or that. If you do it, it doesn't matter if you do it with loud voice or inside yourself. If you make it inside yourself, it's your ego speaking. Your heart says, 
I'm small. I'm a beginner on the spiritual path. I know that I don't know. There is a lot. The universe of the things which I don't know yet is so vast that this universe is a great mystery for me. I am deeply touched in front of the universal mystery. And therefore, I realize that I exist like this through the grace of the universal consciousness, only through union with the universal consciousness. And after this wonderful prayer, which is a model of prayer, and I for one, because this prayer exists in some of the Gnostic Gospels, that means it is a prayer which has not been adulterated by the Church, maybe a little word here and there, without so much thing, I am recommending that anyone, whoever would consider to pray, if you are going to know just one or two prayers in your life how to make, I recommend you should know this one, because it comes from a divine spirit, from an avatar which understands perfectly the union between the human being and the divine. Therefore, this prayer, exactly as Jesus is an archetypal being, and exactly as the existence of Jesus is a model of existence, is a divine model and an archetype, the prayer which he gives, and which is the only one which he ever gives in all his teachings, that's the only prayer that he ever teaches, this prayer is archetypal. It has a tremendous power in uniting our hearts with God. That is why it is good to preserve this as a model because it puts you in touch with the Spirit of Jesus and it is one of the prayers which brings you indeed close to God. But it has to be done not mechanically like a lip service, it has to be done like a prayer that means when you say, you have to understand what you say, you have to participate into what you say. When you say, may thy kingdom come, you don't just say it like this pro forma, you really must wish that the kingdom of God should come. It must be said with the feeling of what you are expressing there. Can you repeat it? Let us repeat it. It is uh, in the New King James Bible and others. It is expressed in a more archaic language. I can read it for you in an archaic language because the old language has the sin, has the error of being much less clear. It is like colorful and uh, uh, old-fashioned, but it has a flavor of its own because it has this magic of the old, long-forgotten long thing. That is why you can learn it both one way and the other. In this text, which is a millennium edition, all the text of the Bible is translated in current English language, in modern English language, so as to convey the meanings fully. But I will read it for you both from this and from the old one, so that you get the both versions. This modern translation reads the Lord's Prayer like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then, forgive us our, I'm sorry, give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is the full meaning of it. I actually have failed to insist on the second half of the last thing, where he says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, which seems to imply 
that at the time when you make the prayer, you are not yet delivered from the evil one, which seems to imply that in the belief of Jesus, and you are going to see that that is exactly the case, and it sounds frightening, the human beings at the time when he comes and says this, are still under the sway of the evil one. They are somehow influenced still by the demonic forces, because you have to pray specifically, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There will be no need to pray, deliver me from the evil one, if I would already be free from the evil one. That is why, that's one of the great tricks of history. Many people refuse to think about this. They say, what? Evil forces? Demonic forces? There are no evil forces. There is no devil. I don't know if there is a there is a God out there, maybe there is some abstract universal consciousness which uh, has no effect on my life anyhow, but definitely there is no devil. This devil thing, it's an idea for old women and for fanatic people from the countryside, it's a middle-age idea, it doesn't exist, there is no evil force which can influence me, control my life, tempt me or so on, I do not accept, I don't believe in any forces that would control my life or whatever. Jesus says, we are not yet, you are not yet delivered from the evil one. You have to pray for that to happen. That means he seems to imply that the existential condition of mankind is a split condition in which man at the average level is a bit with God and a bit under the foot of the devil as well. And actually if you look at mankind, look at the world today and you will see it very clearly. This world is sometimes paradise and sometimes hell. Sometimes some human beings act in such a way that you can obviously see the demonic and the devilish powers manifesting to them. It is absolutely obvious. Therefore, what Jesus says is frightening and that is an older thing in Christian theology. It comes from the temptation of Adam. Adam, the first man, was the first one who was tempted, and because he was tempted, he partly became the servant of the devil. From then on, there is a lot of devilishness. Abel and Cain, one brother kills the other brother, being inspired by the evil one, by the hate and envy by the devil. That means in the human being, there is a battleground, there is a cohabitation, of the divine and that the human being is not born just as a pure child of God because if the human being would be born as a pure child of God with the demonic forces having no power over it things would be so very simple but the things are complicated exactly by this that the human being is under the power of the devil that is why if I remember correctly in the book of Revelation in the last book uh, the devil in the Latin Bible was called Princeps Huius Mundi, the prince of this world. The prince of this world is not God, is the devil. This is a world which is rather demonic than divine. The divine things don't happen, at least not in Kali Yuga. That is why this uh, statement of Jesus is very shocking and you are going to see that he is coming again on it. He seems to imply that the existence, the existence of the human beings, at least in the time when he came to preach this message, the human being was conditioned a lot by a kind of subservience, by a kind of slavery 
to some forces which are divine. That means we human beings, we have barely pulled out of the animal. We are still a lost animal. We are still ruled by our instincts, by our animal nature. There is still a lot of I'm sorry, a lot of demonic thing happening in the human nature. The human nature is not yet distilled. It is the science of alchemy which says you should boil your mixture slowly, slowly, so that the light will separate from the darkness, like in a soup, and then the higher parts should prevail. You have to separate. In the human being there is a mixture of light and shadow, of light and darkness. And Jesus therefore implies it automatically here. Let's read for those of you who can taste the nuances of the English language. Let us just read it from the New James uh, Bible translation. That is the classical one, the one which is three, four hundred years old and which uses a more archaic type of English language. There the Lord's Prayer in English sounds like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And here it ends with a formula, which I don't know why they took it out in this Bible, which is actually one of the basic religious formulas, which is at the same time an acknowledging of God. In many Christian churches they consider that only the priest has the right to say this last part, like it's a supreme praise. He ends by saying, and this formula is a brief formula of praise of God, which gives you so much. He says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, this ending of it is like recognizing that this prayer is said because the almightiness, the glory, belongs to God. It's a very, very beautiful formula. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever, usually it is said. Amen. And the paragraph actually continues a little bit more where you can see immediately that he clicks on one idea. He keeps on the same idea. He says, for if you forgive For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It is pretty dramatic because you can say, well, couldn't God anyhow do it? That means you can be cheeky and say, well, yeah, I'm imperfect and I don't forgive, but God is perfect. He can forgive me anyhow. It's not about that. God is perfect, but because it is a reflection between your consciousness and the universal consciousness, that is precisely the point. The divine consciousness forgives you to the extent where you forgive yourself, because all this universe and the karma itself is a product of the mind. The Tibetans tell us everything. The nature, the Tibetans tell us very clearly, the nature of reality is mind. The reality is ultimately made of mind. Therefore, if the mind 
has not sorted out the issue, of course the issue is not sorted out yet. And Jesus continues with a slightly different related subject. And he says, he comes back to the idea expressed before, but it is beautiful to underline it from different directions. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. It's the same thing. You want to show to people how much tapas you do and how good you are? You have received it. Your reward is the praise of the people. Period. That's all you got. But when you fast, says Jesus, put oil on your head. That's an elegant thing in those days, probably. Put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You, don't, you cannot get anything more clear than this. This teaching is superb. Because again it says, either you inflate your ego or you go to your supreme self. You choose. You want to do something to be praised for it, do it and that praise is what you get from it. You want something that God should praise you in secret, don't show it. Don't brag about it. Don't boast about it. Because there is no need for that. That is the humbleness of the path of the heart. You do... And remember, don't be afraid, because people say, but what if I do, and it will be useless, and people will not benefit from it. Don't worry. Earlier, Jesus has said that nobody lights a candle and puts it under a pot. When you shine, your light is shining. Don't worry. People will see what is to be seen, at least those who deserve and who are awakened, and who are ripe and who have a good karma. You don't need to make any flashy demonstration. What is to be seen, people see from what you are, because you are a light that shines in the darkness. Therefore, don't worry about that. You don't need to try to emphasize your shining by bragging about whatever spiritual things you have done. Here, Jesus is adamant about it. He gives clear examples, like when you fast. Don't even brag about the fact that you are fasting. Keep that modest. You do the fasting and trust ultimately in the divine power. And he continues with a slightly related idea, yet different, by saying, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here, in the last sentence to start with, Jesus admirably describes the aparigraha from yoga, the non-attachment. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You get attached. Jesus knows. Your treasure is here, your heart will be here. Your treasure is in heaven, your heart will be in heaven. Ah, that it is possible to have treasure, that is possible, but you need to be pretty good. And Jesus says, don't rely on that. Be modest. Your treasure is where your heart is, your treasure is. And therefore, here it is very beautiful because Jesus echoes very, very beautifully here the wisdom, the deathbed wisdom of Alexander the Great 
who discovered in the moment of his death that he was dust and he was nothing. And he said, bury me with my hands out of my coffin, so everybody can see that Alexander, who ruled the world, goes to his grave barehanded. You cannot take with you even an atom into your death. Nothing. You discovered, as a great wise man said, you discovered that we are nothing but a great loan from the universe. Everything we are, our body and the molecules out of which is made, our mind and the mental energy by which it works, our astral body and our emotions, all of them are just cosmic energies streaming through us. What are we? We are just alone from the universe. We loan some physical atoms and some astral atoms and some mental atoms and put them together and that's our being. How long will that being exist? Not forever. Nothing exists forever. Everything is ephemeral. Even when something exists for billions of years and still it will have to disappear one day. Even the sun is ephemeral. Even the Brahmas and the Vishnus of this universe are ephemeral in a way because they last for a day of Brahma or for a thousand days of Brahma or whatever and then they have to give way and they have to transform. They have to become something else. That is why nothing in this world exists for such. It is the wonder of Mahabharata. In Mahabharata, Yudhishthira, the wise son, the son of Dharma, the wise brother, he is asked by his father in an ultimate test, what is the greatest miracle on earth? And Yudhishthira says, death is striking every day around us, and yet we live as if we are immortal. That means everybody forgets that we are, what are we? We are passing by through this world. Why should we get attached to this? Children, family, building, inheritance, land, treasures and so on. What are we here forever? The Tibetan yoga has this disturbing sentence which says, always remember that you are a passerby to this world. Don't act like you are going to make your permanent dwelling in this world because you are not. You are a passerby to this world. Then why should you be attached to anything? Therefore, here Jesus echoes fundamental spirituality when he says don't put treasures on earth because where your treasure is, there your heart is. Unfortunately, your mind forgets and you will get attached. You will get blinded. This is aparigraha, possessiveness. Therefore, Jesus here actually advises a path of renunciation and we must admit that the fathers of the desert and the other people who followed literally the advice of Jesus, they tried to do just like that. There were no tantrics among them. The lineage, the line which they followed was this line of complete deprivation. That means they had no choice because the teachings of Jesus for them were very clear. That is why you can say that indeed the tantric approach to spirituality is radical in so many ways because it proposes a sophisticated alternative. An alternative which will also work, but it will work like paradoxically, like it's the exception which strengthens the rule. And then he says something which is truly yoga. This is one of the most mysterious places where Jesus indeed proves that whatever he did, he indeed studied some methods which belong to the yogic spirituality.
<coughs> he says that where the treasure is, your heart is, is like you are looking forward to it. And then he suddenly changes it swiftly, and he changes it a little bit, and the change is both small and very big, because he suddenly jumps to a very special understanding of the mind. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It's almost frightening. What does it mean? The eye is the lamp of the body. And he said, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. What means if your eyes are good? How can your body be full of light, metaphorically speaking? Your eyes are good, that means you are looking the right way. In just the previous paragraph, he tells us, either you look to God, to the heaven, because your treasure is in heaven, and that's where you hope to get things, or you look down here where moth and rust are acting, and that's what your heaven it is. <laughs> Basically, he says, it's the way you focus your eyes. You look downward, that's where your God is, because that's where your heart is. You look up, that's where your God is, because that's where your expectation is, that's where your heart is. You are a citizen of heaven. This world is again a transient stage in your life. You didn't come from here and you are not going eventually to be here. We are all citizens of heaven, but we have forgotten that fundamental truth. And therefore, Jesus here gives an incredible double speech because he says, if you look in the right direction, you are full of light, you receive the inspiration because you are detached and remember the value of detachment, you are non-possessive, and if you put your hope in this, then this is your God, and you are full of darkness. But actually here, try to realize, Jesus is saying, do not, uh, he implies it in a way, in which he says, your treasures should be not down here, where moth and rust, but in heaven. That means what? That means you look down, that's where your goal is. Where you look up, that's where your goal is. And here it's a, a superb double meaning, which is actually a thing of yoga purely. Here actually Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Either he did it on purpose or not, but it is expectable that in such a case Jesus was like, uh, aware of the double meaning on which he was pushing, Jesus is actually describing the technology of yoga, of looking like as you start in the techniques of Trataka and as you end in the techniques of Taraka yoga. In, in Taraka yoga, the name Tara, Taraka, means the star. And those of you who have studied the second cosmic power or Tara, you know that in Sanskrit it is said that Tara is the light in the eye of the human being. Tara is the little star in the light of the... When you look in the eyes, it's like you have a star of light. That star is the guiding star. Look at the proverb of the Arabs who says, if you want to trace your path straight, attach your chariot to a star. Our goal is a star, right? We look after the stars. The star is in the eye. But that, that, what does it mean? It means that the eyes have to be turned up. 
the light in my eye is coming from up. Basically, the yogis in Taraka Yoga, they speak about an amazing process inwardly that you will learn uh, later, quite later, in these yoga courses, in which uh, by using what you have learned in Trataka, in the Trataka techniques, you are actually enriching yourself with the inner light. There is an inner light in the eye through resonance, which is called Taraka, Tara, Taraka, the star, the guiding light, the light which shows you where the heaven is, the light which shows you where the other shore is. This Tara or Taraka Yoga, which is of course illustrated in Tibetan Buddhism by Tara, the savioress, the goddess, the guide, the one that ferries you over the ocean of existence. This is exactly an illustration of it. The Taraka Yoga speaks exactly about the eye. This statement when Jesus comes and says the eye is the lamp of the body, it's like the eye is the star, it is Taraka, it is the inner light in it. It's a very, very discreet allusion. When you know Taraka Yoga, this paragraph is like taken from there. Because in Taraka Yoga, indeed, the two eyes are like the symbols of the sun and the moon. And they can visualize the inner light. And then the eye is the one which enlightens you. The eye is the one which brings light. And basically, Jesus says, if your eyes are good, that means if you look the right direction, which can even mean literally upwards, like in meditation, when you do the upper trataka and this, then your whole body will be full of light. What a yoga technique. It's like Jesus says, look in the third eye and your body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. You don't look where you have to look. You look down, your eyes are full of darkness. You don't reach to that mysterious source of inner light, which is the taraka. That is why this indeed shows an initiation. It indeed shows when he makes such a puzzling, because this could have been said in a different language, but the fact that he is using this double entendre, very weird language, twisted language, which if you don't know yoga, you say, how did he get it? The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, what does he mean? If people have defects of the eyesight, are full of darkness, what does he mean? If your eyes are good or if your eyes are bad, how do we understand that? Therefore, he here actually seems to point, this is one of the texts, we seem to point that perhaps in the teaching of Jesus, there would be more. Perhaps often when he was in prayer, his eyes would go up. Maybe because in meditation in India, in Tibet, you always see that when people meditate, the eyes are turning up. You can see the why that means it's obviously your eyes are looking up, they are looking towards heaven. That's a metaphorical thing, which means look, expect your things from heaven, but it can have a double entendre physically, in actual fact, that if you point your eyes the right way, you do the same. Even in Bhagavad Gita, which is pretty poor from the standpoint of technology, the only technique which actually Krishna deigns to reveal in all that text, the only yoga technique, is exactly this. He says, turn your eyes up, focus them in your Ajna Chakra, in, your, in the middle of the forehead, put your breath, put your vital breath there, and thus you will reach realization or whatever. 
this is universal and it has to be meditated deeply showing you how important this Ajna Chakra, how important the Shambhavi Mudra, how important the inner forms of Trataka and how important the Taraka Yoga are, that there is a great secret there, how we receive our inner light from the higher sources. And the final paragraph with which perhaps we'll end, he says, therefore, he meant it about the material object, and he often has a bitterness about this. Here he ends conclusively, coming back, obviously, to the stories about treasure and material property. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And he ends with a famous sentence, where he says, you cannot serve both God and Mammon. In actually, in this edition, they translated it, you cannot serve both God and money, because Mammon was in the old uh, Judaic uh, mysticism, the demon of money, the demon, the spirit which attracts you through the power of money, which corrupts you through richness and through material property. And therefore, here, uh, Jesus is obvious. That means you cannot serve two masters. Of course, it still remains in the tantric, karma-yogic thing. <coughs> like you can say, Shivananda, who handled quite a lot of money to build an ashram or a printing press or whatever, was he serving God or money? It's obvious that Shivananda could play with the fire without getting burned. He was able to handle money, but never really for himself. Whatever he did, it was for mankind, it was for others. Never did we find out as a result of the work of Shivananda that people complained, ah, Shivananda, he was a cheater and an asshole and he was just uh, embezzling the money of people and so on. No, he did. People made generous donations, especially when Shivananda was famous and great. And yet, he, was, he remained uncorrupted by it. That is why one like Shivananda is the glorious exception to this, that Shivananda had whatever he had to do karma yoga with it, but at the same time his treasure was in heaven. Shivananda never thought that he does something on earth and that because he did a hospital for the eyes or an ashram or a printing press or a colony for lepers or whatever other good things he said, that that is his God, that that is his goal, that he will remain famous in this world for that, that that's his glory, that that's his doing. No, those were secondary things done out of compassion. Shivananda must have obviously put his hope and his treasure in heaven. He never expected anything from these things here. Either he will be forgotten or not, Shivananda did not care. For example, in Rishikesh, Shivananda, in the last years there, a little bit after, after he passed away, but that was his project, they built a huge bridge, a hanging bridge, for people to be able to cross the Ganges, because they could cross it only by boat. And in the years when this was done, this bridge was called Shivananda Jula, the Shivananda Bridge, because it was done through the money of the Shivananda Ashram, at the initiative of Shivananda himself, who had lived for a while in Swarga Ashram on the other side of the river from his present-day ashram. After 20 years, 
some people, of course, the local Babas, irritated of the great per popularity of Shivananda, they slowly, slowly managed to turn it and they called it Ramjula. Now that body, that bridge is not called Shivananda Jula, it's called by most people Ramjula and on the maps and so on. That means, you can say, if Shivananda would have put his hope in the fact that he will remain famous because he built a bridge, then he would also have been betrayed and this would have been a flop and therefore it would have meant a complete fiasco in his accomplishment. But you can be sure that the treasure of Shivananda was not put where the thieves can take it. That means some thieves came and took the glory of Shivananda and because they were jealous on him they called the Shivananda bridge the Ram bridge. Shivananda can smile a bit and he said, okay, you want to call it the Ram bridge? I'm happy for Ram for Rama that you have called this bridge by the name I mean, mm -hmm. what do I care if this is called Ram Jula or Shivananda Jula or Bora Bora Jula or whatever you want to call it. Call it whatever you want, it doesn't matter. This is the attachment or a non-attachment that if you put your hope in what is divine, that's where you are. This teaching is very beautiful because he is showing indeed the divine detachment which Jesus is proving all the time in whatever he is doing. I will not read more. I think it was enough for tonight. We have gone to some of the very heavy, some of the very uh, loaded teachings which Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer. First of all, he continues a little bit more. The Sermon on the Mountain continues couple of pages, probably next week we'll manage to get over that as well. We'll continue these readings from Jesus, from the teachings of Jesus, and try to explain them in a yogic way on next Thursday. Until then, let us see if you do have any questions, if you'd like to emphasize or to discuss on something, after which we'll part for tonight. Mm -hmm. Loudly. Yeah, the original old English um, uses the word trespass, which has now been translated as death. And it doesn't really mean that it means any kind of wrongdoing. Do you know why it may have been focused on to be a money thing because that, that didn't imply in the old translation? No, perhaps the translation is then corrupted in this way because I've seen in, the, in some translations some peculiar discrete corruptions of the text. Obviously, Jesus, when you are asking from God to forgive your debts, you don't have financial debts to God, right? It's obvious that it doesn't refer to money. So it's obviously debts in, uh, in the generalized, as uh, a generalized concept that we are having karmic debts. Forgive our debts, it means we have somehow erred to the universe. And therefore, we simply have to compensate that. So surely, surely this has nothing to do with anything financial or anything of the kind. It's perhaps indeed that the name trespasses would illustrate it better. But the translations of this text chose to be modern in the language. So, the way they changed the text, okay, is that uh, it is difficult to say that because translation is a sacrilege in itself always because any translation kills the original text at least 20%. And the Bible was some of it written first in Greek, like uh, the ones of Luke and so on.
some of it, the Matthew one was probably written in Aramaic first, then it has been translated in Greek in lot something. From the Greek originals today we are translating it. Some of it passed through Latin and then it reached English. Some of it was translated directly from Greek and so on. But for example, the Aramaic originals of the Bible are not preserved. The oldest Bible text preserved is a 4th century or 3rd century Bible, one of the handwritten editions in Greek. That's the oldest manuscript which exists historically preserved until today. Therefore, what the Bible looked in Aramaic first when it was written, so that at least we can have a first-hand translation from Aramaic to English and lose as little as possible, it is um, not available, or at least not officially. Conspiracy theorists say that maybe the Vatican is holding a couple of copies and they have it, and that is plausible, but at the same time... Um, it doesn't change much the things. Fact is that even if you translate from Aramaic, there would be some meanings lost. Our advantage is that nevertheless great spirits who meditated a lot and prayed and even reached enlightenment, some of them, some of the great saints who raised the dead and walked on water and did really, some of those who were really blessed with grace of God and with everything, some of them they have commented that means they read the early copies of the Bible, for example, like Saint Basil the Great who lived in the 4th century, Saint Gregory the theologian who lived in the 4th century, another one, I forgot now his name. Uh, there, are, there were such great saints in the 3rd, 4th century. They had access to the originals of that time. And these people being blessed with also with an enlightenment, with a spiritual realization, and having reached to the level where they could do a samyama, an identification with Jesus, they could understand, we could say, almost perfectly what had been in the mind and in the heart of Jesus when he said those things. And that is why the advantage is that the Bible is not just the words of Jesus and that's all, but the Bible is doubled up by a lot of canonic and theological texts clarifying meanings from the Bible and written by St. George the Theologian and by St. Basil the Great and by St. Anthony the Great and by other formidable saints of, the, of that age. And in that way, uh, this is why it is possible by uh, making a kind of cross-references what the saints said and saw and understood it actually explains, and then you can choose the best translations of the words of the Bible. That is why there are standard translations which are considered to be in accordance with the tradition, and there are translations where the words are used wrong. For example, I think that in the, if I'm correctly, even in this one, in the James, the new King James type of translation, there is somewhere the letter of... Uh, a of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians where he is having the most beautiful quotation from the mystical Christian literature on love and he speaks about the love and actually the translation which was given in the 17th century by the scholars who translated this is a typical bummer of the Anglo-Saxons they translated the word love by charity you can see 
some British Victorian ladies with their scarves tied under, doing some charity for the poors of the village. That's hardly love. That can be a very Svadistanistic social initiative in which we are kind and we do charity. You cannot really translate love as charity. You get in the end, you get the Apostle Paul to say, uh, and uh, although I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have no charity, it profits me nothing. How can you give all your goods to the poor and have no charity? It's even absurd because charity means something and love means something else. But in a religion which becomes dry, me mechanical, lip service, social, just uh, you know, go to the church and pretend you are a good citizen, then you can translate love as charity because that's what those people thought that love is to do charity, right? The benevolent lord of the county is doing charity to his poor subjects from time to time and his soul will go to paradise. That's not what Jesus says. That is why uh, you can see exactly as here in a carefully researched edition because the King James was a reference uh, edition in its own time, still there can be words which are translated poorly without inspiration. Nevertheless, Jesus, or the Apostle Paul here, talks about love. He doesn't talk about charity. The meaning is quite different. Is it Amen and Mantra? Amen. Swam, uh, Paramahamsa Yogananda. Yogananda considers that Amen is derived directly from Aum, and because it contains a little bit of the same letters and the same resonance. And in Christianity, Amen is more like uh, the how of the Red Indians. It will be so. I have said, I have spoken. How? You know, this kind of, it's an interjection which says that the way it's going to be. It's like a vow. It's like taking a vow and saying, now it has been said. This is the way it is going to be. But uh, it corresponds well to the understanding of Aum, and Yogananda, who was pretty specialized in the mantra Aum, who worked a lot with it, he claimed that his understanding of it, his meditation, as well as the teachings of his guru, Sri Yukteswar, they revealed to him that actually this Amen from Christianity, it is more or less the same as Aum. It will, have, it will bear the same thing. Therefore, you can say that if that is the case, Amen or actually Amin, as it is sometimes pronounced in the East, because here we again are having the problem. Uh, even the name of Jesus is pronounced Yeshua in uh, Aramaic, it is pronounced in one way Isus in some languages, it's pronounced Jesus or Jesus, and then if you use the name of Jesus as a prayer, you can say it's a mantra, but it's a very different mantra from English to French to Romanian to Aramaic to... So this is exactly the thing here, this Amen uh, is a mantra which even it is pronounced differently in Aramaic, in Greek, in Latin. For example, in Latin it is Amen, but in Greek it is Amin. So in this way it's a difference of a letter. That's why you cannot really use it like Laya Yoga, like a mantra of resonance. If you want to get the frequency of them, then according to Yogananda it is better to use directly Aum to meditate with the mantra Aum directly. So, what about um, if your eyes are good, um, your body will be sort of like, 
in uh, order to argue to reality, um, the reality gives the, the passage but it says when your eye uh, when your eye is single, then your body will be full right and he took that to mean that uh, that was again his understanding, but that can be corroborated because he says if your eye is single, that means the single eye is Ajna Chakra. Right? So when actually he says if you reach Ajna Chakra but Taraka Yoga and the Trataka and others, they say exactly the same thing. You focus your eyes and join them in Ajna Chakra. So it's the same. There is a continuity of meanings there. Surely we are talking about the one eye, the single eye, the third eye, the eye of Shiva, the eye of oneness. So what do you think about the there is, I said from the beginning, you are not here when I said that, there is much in the message of Jesus which betrays influences which are typically of the non-violence of Buddhism, of the truthfulness and other yamas and niyamas from yoga, from Hinduism, from the Orient generally. That is why unless there are some undercurrents of culture some cross-fertilization between India, Egypt, Palestine, and so on, unless that is the case, uh, then we must admit that somehow Jesus must have had some cultural contact with India, at least visited the place and got inspired by the atmosphere, by the spiritual atmosphere there. I think it sounds quite plausible, it looks very plausible, that indeed Jesus has visited the Orient. After all, in his life, there is this gap of 18 years, which is completely unexplained by anybody until now. That means in the Bible, I don't know if it's in Matthew, but it will appear in others. Jesus appears, the last childhood mention of Jesus is at the age of 12, when he gets this Jewish confirmation ceremony, and then he disappears completely and nothing is said, till the age of 30 when he reappears and starts full power. That's 18 years, is more than half of his life is spent somewhere. Some people say, and this is one of the hilarious, uh, it's really hilarious when you look at it from a yogic standpoint, that means it's enough to meditate and to reach some state of consciousness and then to look back at it and to say it couldn't be this, it couldn't be like this, some people simply claim that mysteriously Jesus was a carpenter in Nazareth and then suddenly he got a hard on and started preaching around. That's stupid. A man with such a spiritual <coughs> dimension will not sit and say, I'm not 30 yet, I have to hold it in my pants, you know, but the day will come and then I'll show you who I am. And meanwhile, just work on some wood. Why should he do that? In the name of what? To, to prove what? That, that fact is not even known. At least if it were known explicitly, you could say, wow, Jesus wanted to show to the world something. But then it would have been in the Bible. That, and also you should know that since that age and until he started doing things, this man did carpentry in the workshop with his father. But that thing is not said. There is a complete gap there. Therefore, why should a man who can see the divine and who can convey the divine message spend some time grinding wood in a carpenter workshop? To do what? To prove what? To help who? To demonstrate what? Ah, that maybe Jesus wanted to experience the human crowd. What is to work? 
could do that for six months. He could do that for three months. He didn't need to do it for 18 years until all his youth was gone. And then suddenly at the age of 30, he clicks on like a robot. Ping, the clock has rang. Now it's time to go full power. That is why, unfortunately, this hypothesis, which I have seen illustrated even in the recent movie of Mel Gibson, is a losing one. It is a ridiculous one because it doesn't feel with the way people feel. Look at the life of Maharishi. Look at the life of Yogananda. Look at the life of Shivananda. Look at the life of the Buddha. Look at the life of Ramakrishna. Would have they stayed in a carpenter workshop and did carpentry when they were boiling with God? Why should they have done that? It's obvious that a person boiling with an absolute love of God like Jesus would not just stay in a carpenter shop as modest as he was to demonstrate what? To do what? Shankaracharya, Adi Shankaracharya, he got enlightened fully at the age of 16 and he preached Hinduism at the age of 16, full power, Vedanta. That means he didn't need to be 30 to do a change in the world. At 16 years old in the time of Jesus, young men were already married and having one or two children. That means it was not too early. He was already an adult in the community. At the age of 12, he could do whatever he, he could preach at the age of 16, if he was like this. But he didn't prove that he was not around. Because if he would have been around, we'd have known. Nobody lights a candle and hides it under a pot. How could have Jesus been the one that he was and stayed and ground wood, sewed, sewed wood in a carpenter's shop? Why? To which purpose? That is why this doesn't hold. It is completely irrational. It is an attempt to explain Jesus absurdly resorting to an absurd thing just because you haven't got anything better to propose, you know. It's impossible to accept that he was in India because that will open Pandora's box because then if we accept that Jesus was in India we have to talk about reincarnation, Buddhism, Hinduism and a lot of other things and the church has actually tried to stay away from those as from fire and uh, the church doesn't want to go into that and then they are coming with this bollocks of compromise theory that the man was a carpenter and actually he was eating the soup that his mom was cooking and he was just grinding that's a very bourgeois type of view of the life of Jesus the wild ones, the prophets and they could never accept such a thing not even Saint Francis of Assisi could sit in the home of his death and listen to the bollocks that he said that is Saint Francis of Assisi when his father was not at home, he went and took all the rich cloth and silver and so on and threw it on the window to the people from the street to take and so on. And his father beat him up and freaked out completely and so on. That's what a man would do. What would Jesus do? Creating tables and chairs in a carpenter's shop. For what? That is a waste of a perfectly good life to demonstrate what? And again I say, you can do it one year exemplificatively, but why should you do it 18 years? Therefore, the way I see it and the way I see it reflected in the lives of all the great yogis of this planet and all the great spirits, that simply does not fit. It comes from theoreticians and theologians who have never been moved by a fiery aspiration for God. And because of this, they consider that it's possible that the man actually should have stayed in a carpenter shop. You can't. There is a fire burning in you which doesn't let you do that. That is why this... Uh, it is much, much more plausible, mystically speaking, internally speaking, to presume that indeed Jesus has accumulated many of his revolutionary, groundbreaking things, also by traveling and taking them from the sources, which in those days were very powerful in India.
Isn't it that many great realized yogi they don't preach? They only preach to one or few. <coughs> Correct. <coughs> These many realized beings, they do not feel that they have the mission to preach to somebody else. At the maximum, maybe they transmit it to one other person. Just one to keep it going. But it's true. Many don't consider that they have to preach. But in the case of Jesus, that's why he was born. He was born to that and he did that. I heard about Yogis <coughs> who projected back to the time of Christ and, and seeing things uh, from the fashion. Now, how, how closely do those things relate to, to the books like this in the Bible? I'm not sure where you're trying to get. They did project and they saw, and. But, but now, when they projected, were they seeing things based on their knowledge of the experience or the actual Sometimes these things are not <coughs> being said because they are touching too many susceptibilities and they would sometimes more wound than heal and they were sometimes more spoiled than help. That is, for example, even Yogananda, who was a lover of Jesus, he says, I had a vision of Jesus in one of my meditations and I prayed to him and I had a Samyama and then Jesus appeared to my vision and he told me some very personal words, which I will not repeat. That means whatever Jesus told me, I cannot tell you. Simply like this. Maybe he told me, you know what, I am fed up with all my Christian church and with all those. But you cannot say that with loud voice because it will spoil so many things that it will spoil too much. And then it remains personal. It may be that yogis have gone in history and they have seen that the Bible is not completely accurate. But they wouldn't say it loud because that would spoil much more. That would destroy without building. That means you should not destroy without being prepared to give something in exchange and to build. As long as you don't feel that you can give to this humanity something better, you should refrain from destroying because the little which is left is much better than nothing. And that is why, yes, there have been yogis who have had visions and so on, but they never really said what they saw because when they considered that this will be destructive and destroying the faith of other people, they preferred not to speak about it. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, what power and what glory is Jesus referring to? The power and the glory of the universe. That means it's power with glory or power without glory. You know, the famous proverb which says winning without difficulties is like power without glory. The power of God is with glory. That means with recognition. It is a recognized power, it is an acknowledged power, it is a glorious power. So Jesus acknowledges that, the saying, thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. It is like acknowledging the oneness and the almightiness of God. I was just wondering, Swami, do you know of any character in like other mythology or tradition that could have been Jesus? on his travels or something like that? <laughs> not on his travels, not in mythologies. You know, there is this story, some people digging into it, uh, who, not Nicholas Roerich, or maybe Nicholas Roerich, or somebody there, 
um, another one with a very close name. They have this story that they discovered some Tibetan manuscripts which allude to... It's not proven yet and many of those can be holographic, uh, falsified things. That means the, the scientists who go, who cut to the bone, they have said that nothing can be proven about those, neither pro nor contra. It's uh, still not demonstrable. Therefore, uh, there are even apparently some manuscripts which tend to point that Jesus lived in Kashmir, that he passed in some places of Tibet, that even he reached Lhasa, that he came back. On the other hand, uh, these things can indeed be prefabricated because Lhasa at the year zero meant nothing. That means Tibet in the year zero was a bunch of wild shepherds who were all of them shamans doing witchcraft and whatever in the meaning that there was no Buddhism, there was no religion, there was no metaphysics. Buddhism was a, like Kenya, you know, like some place where, you know, it was just a wild place with not any special spirituality or anything like this. That is why when I read this paragraph and suddenly it said that Jesus also passed by Lhasa, it was like some modern Tibetan lamas who tried to reinforce uh, the Tibetan people's beliefs, saying that, see, even the great Jesus came by our holy city of Lhasa, but Lhasa at that time didn't exist. Not only the Potala, but Lhasa as a city probably was just a village with three shepherds and five goats, you know. That's all there was in Lhasa. So what should have Jesus done in Lhasa? Because there was no Buddhism to be learned, there was no metaphysics, there was no nothing in the year zero. Padma Sambhava brought Buddhism to Tibet in the year 700 or 800. That is why that document seems to be too conveniently fitting to the interests of the Tibetan community. And you can assume that it is one of those apocryphal things written just to serve some purpose. Exactly as the Christians took over the legend of Buddha and there is the legend of Buddha. Buddha is suddenly called Varlam and Yuasa two Christian saints. It is a very weird Christian apocryphal text which is called the legend of the saints Varlam and Yuasaf. And Varlam and Yuasaf is Buddha and uh, I don't know whom. And the legend is exactly this. A prince who left from his palace but it is written in a Christian way. Like he didn't do meditation. He did prayer. He didn't do this. He did that. It's actually a Christian saint who ran away from the palace of his... It's like a legend twisted, like, look, even Buddha was one of the Christian saints, you know? It's kind of, everybody is trying, even in a unfair way, to get as much, uh, to absorb the reputation of the others, as well. In practice, it seems not. Although, of course, Kashmir is a different story. Kashmir was very developed, spiritually, at the time of Jesus, and that is possible. So indeed, India was the hotbed, it was the cradle of great spirituality at that time. So there it's true that Jesus could have learned a lot of things. But if this can be proven documentarily or not, it is not. But else, if, you're, if, if your question was referring to that, that is, of course, uh, as much as can be said. If else, of course, you can ask yourself if Jesus, a divine being, is visible in human history anywhere else. 
but that is uh, much more controversial, much more difficult besides this one-time manifestation which is groundbreaking, which is history-making. The Jewish idea of Messiah is that once Messiah is up, he will bring the Satellite, he will bring the, the end of uh, the time of, uh, of darkness, and it will change the time. And this is one of the reasons the Jewish Jesus doesn't look at uh, Jesus as the Messiah. So after he came, the time of, uh, of Satellite didn't come, and this is why most Jews will still wait for this day when the Messiah will come. And, uh, <coughs> There are many, many copies to the Bible, uh, how the, the time is changed. So, how does it relate? Because, in fact, this didn't explore the satellite. This is a bit of a long story, actually, because uh, the text of the old prophecies which talk about the Messiah are very cryptical. The old prophecies are written in this twilight language where things are metaphorical and uh, you look at the old prophets like Zechariah or Je of, or um, is Josiah or um, the other one with the rain, Elijah and all the old prophets and so on and their prophecies are written in a very elliptic language so you can give easily before you know what it means you can give two, three different interpretations to it, like with the prophecies of Nostradamus. They always seem to mean something, and when they happen, everybody knows, ah, now one more prophecy has fulfilled. But it's like very few people could see it before. That is why it is uh, debatable always, because uh, the prophecy is saying, talking about uh, the Messiah, they talk about a glorification. And you can say in a certain way that Jesus would have brought that glorification. But you can say, on the other hand, that Jesus also didn't have the time to demonstrate anything because he was stopped, he was not recognized. We don't know what would have happened if the priests of Israel would have said, well, yeah, you are the Messiah, lead us. Maybe in ten years the world would have been a paradise or something else. That means this is exactly the problem that a man like Jesus is coming to bring things in another way because he says the treasure is not on earth, it is in heaven. This is not here, it is there. Therefore, uh, Jesus is coming and saying, forget about uh, the dream of winning like this because you are going to win like that. And if I don't accept it, then I'm saying, what did this actually meant to the Messiah? No, no, forget about it. This is too much for me. I cannot accept this. I don't want to do it this way. That means some people, especially the manipuristic ones, the authorities of the time, you remember that asshole of a king in the, youthful, in the youth of Jesus, he tried to kill I don't know how many thousands of young boys just to catch this one in the, in the nest. So crazy they were. That means he didn't care that he sacrificed ten or hundred or a thousand or how many small babies they were, he just murdered hundreds and perhaps thousands of young babies just to catch one. And if, if you have such a Manipura and you are such a monster, then how are you going to accept one like Jesus who comes and tells you forgive the Romans, love the Romans, do this, do that, it's kind of, you cannot. And therefore, in this way, you, you simply try to rephrase the Messiah, you say, yeah, we, we 
expect the Messiah, but we didn't expect that the Messiah will give us such a hard task. We expected that when He will come, He will give us everything on a gold platter and we'll be just uh, in paradise and everything will be like this. That is why this is also depending on a misinterpretation of the scriptures, that I can read the scriptures and slight alterations have been made in the scriptures in the Jewish ones as well. They have been rewritten again and again in history. <coughs> that you make the prophecies sound the way you want to make them sound. You change a word here and there, you make this statement a little bit more emphatic and strong, you make this a bit hushed down or you cut a little two words here, and you can easily modify that the thing should sound, no, it didn't happen like this. Because, but on the other hand, you can say, well, this was also a test. That means God will give you Satya Yuga if you accept Him. And if you don't accept Him, then you stay in Kali Yuga and bite the dust a little bit more to see what's going to happen. In that way, uh, you, can, you cannot deny that means there is no final argument, even from this standpoint, to deny, to be able to say black and white, look, we can demonstrate that this man was not the Messiah. Because actually what he brought was a superiority. It was an incredible superiority. Many people cannot actually see it, but as we'll go through the text, I'll show you some of the consequences in the human mind and in the human history. And you are going to see that what Jesus brings is an incredible superiority. An incredible superiority. And you are going to see if it is so or not. Therefore, you can say, well, the Jews themselves, they could have enjoyed that superiority for themselves. Said, look, we accept this. This is what's going to make us holy and whatever. And then starting with that, indeed, we have a superiority which is a moral superiority, which is putting us on a good position in spirit. That is why I personally think that this interpretation that Jesus was supposed to bring military power and uh, a complete peace on earth and just uh, serve everything on a platter, it doesn't fit with the way God acts, with, with the way God acts in this world because the divine consciousness has always challenged. Even when Buddha came and changed the world, there was challenge. Even when Tibet was turned into Buddhism, there was a lot of challenges. There was a lot of things to be absorbed and done. There was struggle. There was this and that. Nothing ever works smooth in this way. There were manifestations of God. When Krishna came as an incarnation of God and did the Mahabharata thing and so on, there was struggle. There was challenge. He had to work hard on Arjuna, on Yudhishthira, on whatever. Because there was, even if Krishna was God also in a certain way, Krishna was an avatar, but he still had to fight hard. It didn't just come like this. Here I am, in this moment all your problems are solved. No. That thing doesn't fit because uh, how would human beings evolve? How would human beings transform? If some divine person would come and you'll say, oh, you are lazy, you didn't transform, you are tamasic, you are inert, but you know what? Here is the golden gift of God. Pam, forget about it. That's the dream of a perverted Manipura person who says, I am egoistic, I am inert, I am this, and God is supposed to give me everything. Wait a second. It's not possible really that way, is it? That is why it's obvious that when a Messiah should come, there will be a challenge, obviously, because he is about to give you 
the gift of immortality. He is about to give you the gift of the kingdom of God. That doesn't come just like this. You live a completely normal life and you did all the shitty things of daily life, but the Messiah is anyhow supposed to come and give it to you without any of your efforts. At least there must be from your part an effort of humbleness, an effort of tolerance, an effort of accepting, like saying, look, actually who am I? You know, I'm chaff in the wind, I'm dust in the wind. Maybe this guy is right, you know. Maybe, I mean, I shouldn't be so arrogant as this man has a power, you know. If he is raising the dead and if he is walking on water, he, there must be something, you know. I, who am just a miserable farmer or priest or scribe or businessman or whatever I am, I should sit down and listen carefully, you know, because this guy is showing something here and things are really amazing. But you see that some people didn't have that humbleness. They said, well, miracles or no miracles, signs or no signs, wisdom or no wisdom, talking the truth or not talking the truth, this man is a danger and we have to, uh, you know, eliminate him. We have to do him quickly because he is a thorn in the eye. That is lack of tolerance, that is lack of humbleness, and it simply means I'm failing my test. That means I was about to receive the gift of gifts, but uh, I should at least have the necessary humbleness to thank God for what I'm receiving. Let us stop now. It is over midnight.